Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Nick Bratcher. I'm the campus minister for RUF. I'm thankful that we could be your plan B after you couldn't get Vandy tickets tonight. Um, sorry about that, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, this sem- That's a joke. It's a joke. Okay, <laughs> You can laugh. Uh, this semester, we're working our way through a series on the Psalms. We called it Songs That Shape Us. We call it that because the Psalms are songs that God has given us to sing when we're feeling certain ways. It's a book in the Bible, and usually they're prayed, but they were originally meant to be sung, and they're designed to help us feel our emotions and experience life in a way that honors and glorifies our Creator. Tonight's Psalm, Psalm 59, which we just read, is a song for justice. Now, admittedly, even as we listen to the words of that song, I'm, I'm... going to admit that justice and anger are not popular aspects of God's character in our culture these days. On the whole, if God even exists, people like to think of him primarily as loving and forgiving. Uh, No one usually will fight you over the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins out of an act of God's love for us. But when you zero in on the sin part, people get a little squirmy. Because we desire personal freedom and bodily autonomy above all else, people will kind of fight you over the idea of God defining what is right and what is wrong. And because our highest value in society is affirming self-made identity, we believe if God is loving, he would never deny us that opportunity, right? He would never deny us anything that we desire, all the things that come from who we really are. And with no eternal standard, by which we can, he can judge, God becomes, in our minds, kind of an old grandfatherly figure, right? Who just kind of sits on a front porch in a rocking chair and says, well done, everybody. I'm proud of you, you know, just about everybody and everything. But here's the deal, right? This rejection of the God of the Bible, the one that this psalm prays to, the one that this psalm sings about, he, uh, when we reject him, it leaves us with an ache and no cure, Right? By stripping God of his ability to require from us what is right, we rob him of his capacity to judge what is wrong. This means we dismiss the possibility of an angry, judgmental God and his rigid moral standards only to look out at the world and hunger and thirst for the very justice and freedom that, that uh, we tossed aside to get those things. Right? And this hunger for a righteous judge evidences itself in little hunger pangs, I would say. Right? These moments where we cry out over injustice, over being wronged. Only we do not know who to cry to in our, in our current age. Right? Especially when authorities and powers of this world fail us, we feel something has gone wrong, but we don't know who to appeal to. These hunger pangs... You know, come in two forms, right? There's the cultural moments of collective outrage, right? We've experienced them. Even here in our own backyard last fall, right? A young white woman physically assaulted Kyla Spring as she was working the front desk at Boyd Hall, calling her the N-word roughly 200 times on video, right? We, we feel something has gone wrong there. Something, so, something should be done about that. And yet, Right. If, as long as UK just dismisses her, I remember people were very angry at the University of Kentucky for just allowing her to just withdraw from school. Something should be done. Right. On what basis? How do we know that? I would argue the Bible. I would argue God tells us, but we've dismissed him. He doesn't get to tell us what to do. 
And these pangs have given rise to even the Me Too movement, right? We cry out that we've experienced sexual harassment and sexual assault for too long. It's been brushed on the rug and we feel that something needs to be done. And what I would say is that the God of the Bible is here to do something. That he, he cares about these things and that we should not dismiss his rule over our lives because he's the one at the end of the day who will ensure these things get taken care of. But the hurt isn't just out there. It isn't just out there, is it? Right? Some of you in this room tonight, you have been wronged in some tragic ways. You've had parents that, with, that have withheld love or they've said hurtful things to you. You've had boyfriends or girlfriends that have left their scars from cheating or disrespect. You've had bosses who wielded their authority unjustly. Maybe it isn't even as obvious as any of that. Maybe uh, it's, you're like the psalmist tonight, right? Though he's afraid of bloodthirsty men who are his enemies, we find out that the real threat is actually just their words, right? Stirring up strife in verse three. In verse three. Possessing a, a sword in their lips in verse seven. Have you ever been hurt by something someone said to you or about you that wasn't true, that wasn't, that wasn't deserved? Or maybe it was something unsaid. Maybe a friend didn't stick up for you when they should have. Or maybe they didn't include you in the housing plans for next year, right? I've never seen social angst like housing and rooming angst at the University of Kentucky, right? I've been here one, one full semester and you guys all talk about it all the time. You don't know this, but you all sit down with me in one-on-ones and you go, I don't know where I'm going to live next year. Nobody loves me. Um, look, I'm not trying to make light of it. You guys are like, hey, don't tell them. You're all looking around like, do they know? You know, it's yes, they all know. You all do it, right? Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but you all do it. And here's what I'll say is that, uh, you know, that means that we've all been sinned against, right? There's, there's something about the world that doesn't function like it's supposed to. We've all experienced pain at the hands of others, some of you in major ways, some of you in small ways. But these wrongs leave us in the same place as this psalmist, crying out for the deliverance and protection that our hearts long for. In these moments, according to this psalm, God invites us to pray that he would make our enemies totter, until at last he brings them down to destruction, consuming them in his wrath until they are no more. God invites you to to pray that. that. Those are direct quotes from verses 11 and 13. God wants us to ask for judgment when we recognize sin in this world running rampant, especially, actually, when it's against ourselves. But the question becomes, right, if this climax of the psalm is to be prayed, how are we to pray it? How are we supposed to pray these acts of judgment? What, what should our posture be as we cry out to God for judgments against sins committed against us? I mean, the truth is, uh, even though we just, I just said that, some of, that we've all been sinned against, the truth is we aren't sinless ourselves. We've also hurt people. We've left people out of our own housemaking plans, right? As soon as we got one, we were happy to leave everybody else behind, right? We certainly aren't sinless ourselves. What gives us the right to be angry at other people? This forms our big question for the evening. This is kind of where we're going to camp out. Here's the question. How are we to seek justice when we have been wronged or hurt? Right? How are we to seek justice? Uh, let's pray about that and before we dive in. Uh, dear God, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Let's dive into our passage as we attempt to answer the question, how are we to seek 
justice. Look at me at first at verses three through four. Let's look at verses three through four first. After a brief prayer to God, the psalmist begins to describe the situation. Right? His enemies, the people seeking to wrong him are doing so, he says, for no transgression or sin on his part. Through no fault of the psalmist, these men are out to hurt him. Now, when the psalmist says that this sin is being committed against him without any sin on his part, this does not mean that the psalmist has never committed any sin ever. Right? We shouldn't absolutize this statement in a way that it makes it impossible for God's people to pray or sing this psalm with sincerity. It's not that God gives these words only to those who are perfectly holy in our midst. As long as you've never done anything wrong to anybody, then you get to pray this psalm. In fact, the author of this psalm, David, will make this assumption explicit in other psalms, like 142, Psalm 142, when he writes, Enter not into judgment with your servant, God, for no one living is righteous before you. He's aware, you're aware, no one really is perfect. It's not that David is so much better than he is uh, of those whom he's accusing of sinning against him, and that he's asking God to exercise judgment only on them, not on him. He's saying uh, that in this particular civil case, so to speak, right, he is not the bad actor, right? He is right to play the plaintiff and he should win the case. Something has gone wrong and he doesn't warrant what has happened. We can say a couple things about this. First, first, it's possible for people to treat you poorly, to treat you wrongly, and it not be your fault. Let me say that again. It's possible for someone to have treated you poorly and you not deserve it. Right? There's a type of hyper-spirituality in, in some areas of Christendom that says that, like, well, we're all guilty of sin, so we deserve all the bad stuff that comes our way. Right? I, I call that spiritual Eeyoreism, right? Everything's terrible. It's to be expected. It's God's judgment on my sin. I probably deserved it. I deserve people to treat me like this. Hard situations in life may be God trying to sanctify you, yes. And it may even be him disciplining you. If you've, if you've sinned, you might have repercussions for your actions. But other people sinning against you is never from God. James 1.13 says that God never tempts anyone to sin. That's their own prerogative. That's their own thing. But in avoiding this spiritual eorism, we also should not fall on the other end of the spectrum and into a, an opposite ditch. Right, of spiritual pride or Phariseeism, assuming that we've always never played any part in the sin that someone's committed against us. Right? I, I never provoked anybody. I did not treat them badly. They, right? I just, we need to stop for a second. Sometimes people hurt us because we've hurt them. Right? Sometimes people may hurt us out of being hurt by us. This happens when you neglect to invite someone to a group hangout, right? and then out of pain of being left out, that friend tells everybody that you're a jerk right? They gossip about you. They should go straight to you. Matthew 18 is very clear. If you have a problem with somebody, you should go straight to them. But because they don't want to do that, they just talk to all their friends about how terrible you are and they sin against you. That doesn't excuse their sin, right? They must answer for the gossip just as you need to answer for your neglect, right? The, the correct course of action here is not to pray to God that he will judge your friend for, for talking about you, but to humbly ask their forgiveness, right? To go straight to them and they should do the same. This is why Jesus gives the advice in Matthew 7 that before we confront a brother or sister about the sin in their life, we should humbly acknowledge our own. We must take the spiritual log out of our own eye before we point out the spiritual speck 
in our brother or sisters. But this psalmist has not fallen in either of these ditches, right? He has examined his situation rightly and knows he does not warrant the attack he's receiving. So this gives us our first answer to the question, right? How are we to seek justice after examining our own part in the situation, right? The first thing you got to do, if you want justice in a situation, as Christians, we assume, firstly, like, what did I do? How bad, how bad am I? What, like, most times it's like, I, you don't, I don't know the half of it. If somebody assumes that I've done something wrong, it's like, yeah, I probably have, right? We can say that because we know that oftentimes we do have a part in the situation. The fact that the psalmist can declare himself innocent of the wrong that has come against him at the hands of his enemies means that he has done the hard work of humbly examining his own part in the situation. And before we pray to God for judgment, no matter how we may immediately feel about the injustice done to us, we should ask ourselves if we are not responsible in some way for the wrong being done to us. Right? Not always, I just said, no spiritual eorism, but sometimes right? We, we have made the problem ourselves. This helps us to escape both the trap of spiritual eorism and Phariseeism. Assuming that uh, either all the injustices done to us are excusable or that we've never caused anything wrong to happen to us. Now, what if, right, like, like the psalmist, we have experienced someone wronging us and have surveyed our part in their attack and have come to the conclusion that we're innocent? What if you look at the situation and you go, I really didn't want that. I should not have been spoken to that way. I shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened to me. A true injustice is being committed. How are we to seek God's justice in that situation? Look at me at verses 8 through 10. Look at me at verses 8 through 10. Here the psalmist turns his focus away from his situation to the strength and protection of God. God, rather than the enemy, fills the foreground of the psalmist's eyes. This is because the psalmist recognizes God's role in the situation. Now what is that? What is God's role? While the psalmist's enemies howl and bellow in their slander, God is depicted as the true laugher. Right? Look at verse 8. While the enemies hold the psalmist in derision, it's God who holds the enemies in his own. In verse 9, God is a fortress behind which the psalmist knows safety. Of course, this is not a literal safety, or else there'd be no need for the psalm in the first place. Right? He wouldn't be facing an attack. What it means is that God will protect him in the end. He is a fortress in the end. It will all work out. To borrow language even from verse 10, God will meet him in his strife. That phrase, meet, uh, it's the same phrase used to describe actually a, a coronation ceremony, like part of a coronation ceremony where you make a king a king. It happens uh, you know, somewhat frequently in the ancient world. The people would usually meet their new king with gifts. Psalm 21.3 describes this moment in which God himself coronates his own chosen king. It says this, For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. In the midst of pain, God is coming to the psalmist as a treasured king, is met by assurances of fidelity and loyalty from his people. And the psalmist knows this is how God will meet him in this moment of strife because of who God has proven himself to be time and time again. God shows up, right? God is loyal. He shows up. He meets his people. After 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God heard the cries of his people and he knew. He brought them out of the oppression of slavery and into the promised land with miraculous acts like raining bread from heaven, 
pouring water out of rocks, leading them across whole seas on dry land. It might take time, right? The truth is of that story, most of the Israelites who lived uh, in the days of Israel actually lived in slavery in Egypt, right? 430 years worth of slavery. But God will judge in the end. He is with the psalmist. And we have even greater evidence that God will actually meet us in our strife than the psalmist had at his point in history, right? Think about it. In Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, we're told about how Jesus, God himself, met us in our frail humanity. Therefore, it says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that Jesus might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because Jesus himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The reality is that God has met us, not only spiritually, not just in miraculous signs, but physically becoming a man on earth. When the psalmist here leans on the promise that God will meet him in his strife, give him good gifts, even in the difficult times, right? Crown him as a king. He doesn't know the half of it. He's resting on promises. He doesn't even know the half of how God is going to fulfill them. Jesus knows what it's like to be left in an unjust situation. He knows what it's like to experience other people wronging him for no reason and have to give it over to God. To trust that God is present in the situation and that he will make things right. This nearness of God is why the psalmist simply looks in triumph as God brings victory. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. The psalmist is comforted knowing that it is God who fights on his behalf. He will simply look on. God will sort out the injustice. And this brings us to our second answer to our big question this evening. How are we to seek justice? Well, it's with an understanding that God is the true judge. Right? Knowing, understanding that God is the true judge. We should examine our own part in the situation. And we should know that God is the true judge, not us. That's the thing, though, right? If God is the judge, it means that you are not. Even as God gives you a voice to express the anger you feel when someone has wronged you, through the words of this very psalm, and there are others like it throughout the psalm book, right? There are many others. They're called imprecatory psalms. You can look it up. There are a few just like this. Some of them are even worse, talking about dashing babies' heads against rocks. We can talk about that some other time, Right? But God gives you these words to express your anger. And here's the thing. Even as you say them, you can also let go of your anger. Even as God gives you these words to pray and sing and cry out to him about how wrong someone has treated you, you also, in the same breath as you do that, can let it go. You can entrust yourself to him as the true judge. I mean, this is hard. I know. What do most of us do when someone hurts us? What do we most of us do? I do this all the time. You get home, right? If you're like me, I, I get home and I'll just be replaying the situation over and over in my head, right? And I, you know, I should have told, I should have told, you know, I should have said that guy, I should have told him this, you know, I, oh man, I have the perfect, I have the perfect comeback now. You always think of it after the fact. I'm in traffic. I should have given that guy the bird. I should have done it. You know, like I just get so mad, right? Yeah, that's right. Your pastor gets angry. Uh, and then, then he'd have learned, man, you know what? No, I should have actually sped up and hit him. That's what I should have done. You know, think of all the ways I should have responded to the other person's wrongdoing. You ever do that? Am I, the, am I the only one? You ever rehearse what you should have said? Am I, okay, good. I'm not, I'm not alone. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing when we do that stuff. You're trying to punish that person in your mind, aren't you? 
replay it so you can go back and make them feel worse. Right? You don't have the opportunity anymore, so you just do it in your head over and over and over again. This psalm offers a way out, right? a different way from that, that God be the judge, that we leave it up to his ability to discern right and wrong. In other words, we need to let God be God and let ourselves not be, right? We need to let God be God and let ourselves not be. God is the true judge. This means that retaliation or revenge, even in our hearts and minds, is not the way forward. God will sort it out so you don't have to. Now, how do we know that he'll give us justice? How do we know? Sure, we can confidently ask through the psalm, but right now it may not seem like he's doing anything. Some of you have been in situations where someone has been wronging you over and over and over again for a long time. And you don't know how God is going to make good on his promises. He's not doing anything lately. Where's he been in this part of my life? My dad or my mom? Well, look with me at verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. What do we do in the meantime? I've already mentioned the beginning part of this verse, that, that God will consume sinners in wrath and consume his people's enemies until they are no more. But it's important to stop and consider the point that's being like, kind of undergirding this, this part of the psalm uh, by the psalmist. And it, it's why God is the judge that he is, right? The, the psalmist is raising a point of why God is the judge that he is. Why does God consume people in wrath? Why does he care so much about sin? Why will he answer this prayer as a good and perfect judge would do? Interestingly, the real point of singing this song is not our need for vengeance or our desire for justice, right? I said it's a, t- it's a time to sing those songs. Yes, and it is. But that's not why we sing it, actually. The point isn't even ultimately about uh, our own comfort, making us feel better. Uh, the, the, again, these things can happen, but that's not the point. And this is particularly obvious when, when, once we realize that God might answer this psalm in a way that we don't expect, right? In a way that we don't want him to, by having someone come to faith, right? For having them repent, right? Uh, thereby, right, if, he, if they do that, God will forgive their sin, placing it on Christ and avoiding the penalty of their error. We know, and for our own sakes, we are thankful that God's wrath has been turned away from us in Jesus. Right? If you place your faith in Jesus, God does not hold you as his enemy anymore. The same is true, actually, for your enemies, should they believe in Jesus. It can't be about our comfort, can't be about just about uh, you know, making us feel better or wanting justice or vengeance. That's not ultimately what this psalm is about. So then why will God judge sin? Why should we sing and pray as this psalm teaches? The point of singing this psalm, look at verse 13. The point of praying this prayer is that the whole earth may know that God rules over Jacob. Ultimately, it is God's glory that is at stake in whether or not he punishes sin. That's why we should want justice. That's what gives us room for justice, even as we are sinners, because it will further God's glory, either by judging sin on the cross, either by pouring out his wrath on someone who does not deserve it, who is taking it on for us, or he will pour it out on us if we do not repent at the last day, right? God will eventually judge all sin. He will make all things right. And his glory is displayed in both things by being a just judge who does not let people off the hook and also by being a glorious, merciful savior. Now, here's the deal. Uh, You might be prompted at this point to say, wait, 
Wait, wait, wait. So God doesn't just love me enough to punish sin? God doesn't just love, he's not going to do it just to punish sin. He wants his own glory. There's got to be something in it for him. Why doesn't he just love me? Here's the deal. You want God's glory to be at stake. This is actually the best news you could possibly ever dream of, that you probably don't dream of, that sin is primarily rebellion against God. We saw this when we looked at Psalm 51, that David in that Psalm tells God that it's against him only that he had sinned and done what was evil, despite the fact that he'd actually slept with another man's wife and then murdered the man to cover it up. All sin is chiefly against God. And that means that God is invested for his own sake in making things right. This is actually our third answer to our big question. How do we seek justice with God's glory at the center? Right? When we seek justice, it's that God's glory needs to be at the center. Examine your own part in the situation. Understand that God's the true judge and put God's glory at the center. True justice accomplishes the task that they may know. One way or the other that the other person may know. If they repent and and the, the injustice is put on Jesus, that's also great because God's glory is the end goal. Have you guys ever seen uh, Smucker's commercials? Y'all ever see like Smucker's advertisements? They have like a little slogan. It says, uh, with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. Y'all heard this before? With a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. Now, I understand uh, that might sound a little foofy or like corny. And I guess it is because it's, you know, it's a jelly brand, right? Uh, But what they're saying in their advertisement, right, is that their jelly is so good that they'll put their name on it. Right, they're saying, you can judge us by our ability to deliver on what we promise. Every bottle you open is a direct reflection of who we are. Now, that might say a lot about smuckers they don't intend to say, but neither here nor there. It's an effective strategy. It's why they're not the only product even to do this. Before uh, government regulations were put in place, George Garvin Brown of Old Forster used to sign every bottle of bourbon that left his facility as a means of guaranteeing its quality before the government uh, started explaining what could be straight bourbon and all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is this, right? Just as Smuckers is invested in their jelly and George Garvin Brown was invested in his whiskey, God is invested, literally, with his own blood in his reputation as a good judge. He puts his name on it. He has claimed and verified it in the blood of Jesus that he will judge sin. No one's off the hook. The people that you have wronged you in your life, he will make it right. The psalm invites us to sing of God's glory in executing that role of judge, knowing that he's willing to do whatever it takes to do so, to be a good judge, to make it right. The earth must know who is its rightful ruler, and God will make good on that. One day the earth will whether judged in Jesus or in ourselves, God will make it right. In the meantime, we pray. Let's do that now. Lord, you teach us.